0: So this evening I would like to talk about the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And it's the um tendency of the mind to go elsewhere. And I know none of you know anything about that on <laughs> <laughs> retreat. <laughs> And this road trip we're on, it would be like being at that, um, in New England where you have those roundabouts and you go around and around and around and around. And so uh, it's that tendency of mine that's always on the ride. Another image I have of restlessness and worry is, is like being in an amusement park. And you've got all these speed rides. You've got the roller coaster and the fast wheel, Ferris wheel. I remember growing up, there was the one called the rotor, or the rooter, where you stuck to the wall, and it spun around really fast, and then the the floor dropped out, and it's like, ah! There's <laughs> you know. nothing you could do. You were just caught gravitationally against the wall, and the speed, and the floor dropped out. and the good news is the, the, the um, you know, the ride ends at some point. So, we, <laughs> there's hope here. <laughs> um. So, the characteristic of uh, this uh, hindrance is there's a sense of overwhelm and fear. Uh, there can be agitation there, fantasy, exhaustion high judgment, ambivalence. And then there's just being downright bored with your own thoughts. That's a big piece of the spin, just being tired of your own uh, mind. In the outer world, in the marketplace, sometimes what we see with someone who's taken the form of this hindrance is that they are busy all the time. And it's... it's uh, it's. Uh, particular uh, way that our outer environment supports this hindrance of being busy, busy, busy and active and multitasking and doing a lot of things. So there's a lot of reward around it. A friend of mine that I work with uh, says that uh, he was embarrassed that his wife on Facebook all the time is always listening, everything she's always doing. And uh, and she's so tired, and she's doing all this stuff, and she's getting all these things done, and she's just so tired. And I said, well, why is that such a problem for you? And he said, because she's showing all the things that my mind does that I don't want anybody else to see. <laughs> <laughs> so she needs to stop so I can feel better. <laughs> so there's that sense of this just speed and... Um, and actually it has kind of a momentum and addiction to it that moves very quickly. The person that kind of embodies this in the marketplace might be prone to, to have an accident where they bump into things or hurt their ankle because there's a sense of being out of bodied and on the run um, as an archetype. We also uh, worry about the world, and we worry about our loved ones, and we worry about ourselves. There's things that we worry about, and these are, uh, this restlessness and worry quality is a sense of um, trying with all your might, but not being able to get out of it, get off the, the ruder ride. So we can see this in the world with different things that are changing before us, like in the climate and um, maybe with our children that are doing things that we can't control, um, things that happen in our relationship that we just can't seem to make any different. Uh, and we're kind of left with ourselves in the aftermath of it. I read a statistic once that said that 99% of what we think is rehashed, and then 80% of that 99% is negative. <laughs> so that's the that's the spin of it, that we're rehashing, rehearsing, repeating, reliving um, in this uh, state of restlessness and worry. And what's really unique about this particular hindrance is that it tends to like to dance with the other hindrances. So you can have restlessness and worry, and then it'll grab in aversion, you know. So then you're you're in this state of uh, being in that high speed of restlessness and worry with that twinge of ill will and hate. Or it can attach itself to um, greed. So there's the the, um, wanting mind or sloth and torpor. And as Gil will speak about tomorrow, doubt. So any one of these um, other hindrances can add a particular flavor to the experience of restlessness and worry. So it's really good to uh, notice how that plays out. And the the world is just one big nervous system in a way. You know, we're always kind of uh, touched by other people and. You know, I've been in a major state of restlessness and worry as I've prepared for this retreat. Can you just imagine sitting next to Gil? <laughs> I just have to say this. Because I've been preparing for this since he invited me a year ago. That's, this is my secret. You've been coming in telling me about your restlessness and worry. I'm going to tell you about mine. <laughs> so he sits here. Without a note I- anywhere to be found, and if I don't write my name down, I'm not going to remember what it is sometimes. And everything that comes out of his mouth is golden and ju- it's just jewel-like, you know. And I sit in my chair and I shrink into something like a little raisin that I put out on the table yesterday morning. And then my mind kicks in, you know, whoa, my gosh, I don't think, I, I think I'll leave now. <laughs> what could I possibly have to say after Gil, you know, the person whose iPods I've been listening to for, for a long time. So there's something about how we... Uh, compare and contrast ourselves with this restlessness and world swirl there's actually a distortion of scale that happens where we um, we what we see is not really quite what we think it is Um, so it's you it's it's this it's a funny kind of thing that happens Because the activity of restlessness and worry is actually trying to uh, maintain a sense of self. So there's selfing activity that's going on with the restlessness and worry. There's an attempt to maintain a sense of self because the alternative is unknown and frightening. So the activity is actually intending to ho- to hold it together, the sense of self that we have. But it doesn't work, you know. And we can't stop. We can't seem to to ever get it right. There's that addictive quality about it where there's just enough delusion in it to have you believe that if you just keep working harder at it, something might happen because there was that one time where you were really working hard at this, and a really brilliant thing came out of it. So you believe that if you just keep, keep on with it, if I just revise this talk on five more times, I'll be like Gil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be able to come without notes. <laughs> it's probably gonna be in another lifetime, but that's all right. So there is that sense of measuring, and comparing, and judging, and hoping, and shrinking. and, I mean, it's, it's all in the spin of restlessness and worry. We're all one big nervous system. We can also become restless and worried when we're out of our sense of integrity. And this can happen on this practice, because what happens when we're practicing is we learn a lot, we get a lot of information about these amazing teachings. And then we compare ourselves to whether we're there or not. You know, these teachings were meant to be a life's work, you know, many lifetimes actually. But when we hear them, we think we should be there already. So then that gives us a nice perpetual um, kick in the behind where we're always not quite measuring up to what we think should be happening so so th- so that's a piece of it and um th- you know so we know the teachings we lose our capacity to witness what's happening because we're swooped up by it and um the the principle th- then the principles that we know to be true are just hard to to live with any length of uh, momentum especially when we're swooped into restlessness and worry So our view is distorted. The Buddha said that restlessness is worry, and worry is like water full of dye. There's a certain distortion when you look at the water, and it's unclear. And that's what we're dealing with. It's kind of a weary manifestation of clinging, the worriness aspect of it. And there's aversion that we have towards the unclarity, towards the uncertainty that is occurring with restlessness and worry. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how to put it to rest. And so we wear ourselves out. The other thing that happens with this hindrance is that we worry about our restlessness. So not only is this the hindrance of restlessness and worry, but we worry about our restlessness; it becomes a vicious cycle. So this selfing piece is, uh, is is useful because there's an attempt to clone ourselves so that so that we can replicate ourselves and feel a little safer in our world. But it doesn't always work. We're frightened of the emptiness that is. Um, the, you know, in, in, in the absence of restlessness and worry. Now, this is an activity of mind. We're not doing it on purpose. It's just kind of the thing that the mind does. But we hop on it, like Gil was saying earlier. We hop on the boats that's, that's floating down instead of staying on the banks. And, um, but we're hoping that we can replicate ourselves and secure ourselves and reassure ourselves for some future time. But the Buddha taught that the self was never real, that that we appear solid and concrete, but that's an illusion. And that who we are and what we are is a series of processes that are constantly changing all the time, constantly changing. I knew I was in trouble as I was preparing with this retreat. The night before I came here, I had a dream about identity theft. <laughs> <laughs> it was a dream about identity theft. I was in the back of this SUV and with two people and then the people came and robbed the car and took us away to this uh, really huge warehouse that was immaculate and clean and there were a bunch of people in there. They actually looked like they were having a good time but everybody was stripped of everything every piece of ID, and everything was gone, the clothes were gone, everything was gone. And they were in this big bin over here, and they, they were like being repurposed, all of these pieces of identity. And then everybody else was just sitting there having a good time, and, and I got the sense that they had been there a long time. So it was almost like identity stuff is not so, so bad. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's another place I could be living without, without my stuff. And it, my stuff can be repurposed somewhere. <laughs> Maybe somebody else wants it. <laughs> the truth is that we can't control what happens. We can't control, you know, all of it. We can't control our thoughts. We can't control our lives. We can't control how we respond to it. And I love what Donna Fouls has to say about this. She says, There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear fantasies, failures, and success. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So that's a particular way we can look at how we hold things and the promise of the letting go. And the task of meditation is to discover and see the true nature of who we are, to see that there's a lot more there than um, our sense of uh, what we're seeing. There's a lot more to what's arising and passing away than our uh, clinging to it. The idea here is not to try to eliminate restlessness and worry, because if you could do that, you would have done it by now. You would be there already. So it's not that we are trying to make it go away. We're looking at how we have a new, a different relationship, a more wholesome, a more liberating way of being with what arises, regardless of what it is. The idea is to relax the grip on the ego, to relax, relax the grip on the ego because the contraction that happens around us, the suffering that happens is very burdensome and it weighs us down. And there's a way that through our practice we want to balance the ego's need to do things with our inherent capacity to just be who we are, to just be. So there's a few strategies I'd like to offer around this um, hindrance of uh, restlessness and worry and one is the first one I think is to really bring the practice of mindfulness into the mix in a big way and here's a way to kinda hold experience Banti Guna Natara in his book on mindfulness in plain English talks about the quality of mindfulness Uh, Especially as it relates to this sense of spaciousness and fixation. Fixation being what happens when we are really kind of taken away with restlessness and worry. He says it this way. He says, awareness happens just before you start thinking. A flashing split second just before your eyes focus and your mind Your eyes focus, just before you focus your eyes and your mind on the thing itself that's arising. Just before you objectify it, clamp down on it mentally and separate it from the rest of existence. Just before your mind says, oh, that's a dog. The few seconds just before you conceptualize it as a thing is mindfulness. This soft, unfocused awareness contains a very deep knowing that is lost as soon as you focus in and fix your mind and objectify the object as a thing, as a dog. Once the mind perceives mindfulness is quickly passed over and mindfulness practice teaches us to prolong that moment of awareness so this is uh, the the experience of restlessness and worry can feel like we're really locked in on the object of what's arisen you know we're kind of fixed in it we're over we're, we're in it you know we're we're up against the wall with it and what bhante G. is suggesting is that we open that lens to see that there's something to be seen before that happens and as that subsides. And the minute that we lock in on the object, uh, then mindfulness is lost, so the, the view is narrowed. And the idea here is to open the view, to put a little space around what we're worried about, what we're experiencing, so that we can see more clearly. There's another poem by Wallace Stevens who talks about 13 ways of looking at the blackbird and he says it this way. I do do not know which to prefer. The beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendo. The blackbird whistling or just after. So the beauty of inflections has to do with the foreground and what's arising. The beauty of innuendo has to do with the background, just after. So we wanna see not just one or the other, but what's it like to not have a preference to see the wide open space of awareness. So meditation, this practice we're doing, gets the mind out of the way so that we can focus on a wider experience. And the Buddha teaches us that we don't have to know as much as we need to tolerate not knowing. We need to, to look at how we tolerate not knowing and break ourselves out of the trance. So another thing, another strategy here is to not believe your thoughts. Um, So because the thoughts can be distorting, could be a distorted view. And some of this is looking at our relationship to what it is that we believe, so I saw this thing on Facebook that said, my doctor asked if members of my family suffered from insanity. I replied, no, we all seem to enjoy it. So what is our relationship to what it is that we believe? And Winnicott says that we are poor indeed if we are only sane. (laughs) That's another way of looking at it. But there's a term, Papancha, in our tradition that talks about the proliferation of thoughts, the elaboration of thoughts. So it's kind of like being at the amusement park and, you know, the cotton candy machine where you start with the skinny stick and it goes around the cotton candy before you know it. You've got this big thing of um, mostly sugar (laughs) 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 that you can carry around now. And uh, it's the um, proliferation of thoughts and we can run off in big ways with our thinking. And Mark Twain, of course, says that I've suffered a great many catastrophes in my life. Most of them never happened. (laughs) That's another way that we're with this sense of not believing our thoughts. Can we not believe what arises? And this whole sense of scale and distortion happens and we can see it sometimes very immediately, like I was raised uh, in a family of eight in South Central Los Angeles, and my mother um, worked a couple of jobs, so my older's, oldest sister kind of took care of us, and she hated that job. You know, she wanted to do other things that other people, so when I was growing up, I, 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 just, I just experienced her as this huge, frightening, <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, I was scared of her most of my life, just scared of her. And it would take me uh, a few years, I'm not going to tell you how many, before I can actually put into perspective, this practice had a lot to do with it, that she was only a couple of years older than me and a few inches taller. But my experience of her, my mind experience of her was huge. She was so much bigger than she actually was, and, and I could then see that she too had her own form of suffering that she was living with. So restlessness and worry is like the other hindrances, they're meant to be touched and known, and, um, and, and to know your particular regular visitors, you might have a top 10 list you know, a little playlist in your mind that, that plays regularly around, like, do you love me, you know, <laughs> or uh, do I measure up, you know, or whatever the tears of a clown. I mean, you know, you know, whatever the, the playlist might be to be- become acquainted with what is the recurring themes that I dance with? You know, what are these? What? Are, let me give them a proper name so they can know that they're welcomed. I can't help myself, that might be another (laughs) playlist, you know, so just become acquainted with the themes and to actually be entertained by them, you know, to see them on the big screen and to allow them to reveal uh, themselves to you. Another thing we can do, I think it was recommended a little earlier in the week, is, is to drop the object of our agitation. If we, if we can, sometimes it's difficult to do this, but the idea is to drop the storyline, the object, sometimes it's outside of ourselves, oftentimes it is, to drop that and then turn inward to see how it lives on the inside. How does restlessness and worry live on the inside? what's that like and what you see when you move in close there is you see how you suffer very directly that's how you know restlessness and worry when you can touch how it lives loud inside of you it's not just a projection or a story outside of you it's very much an experience that we can come to know And we want to look at that with a sense of relaxed and tender awareness. Gil led a beautiful um, guided uh, meditation earlier today that that took us into the subtlety of experiencing uh, these tender ways we are touched by what arises and how we can sit on the bank and uh, watch it. And it doesn't mean we don't feel it. It means we're not being uh, taken away by it and the other thing that's important uh, in dropping the object of our agitation and allowing ourselves to experience is to also open our awareness again with the mindfulness idea open our awareness enough to see when it's no longer present restlessness and worry is not a forever state of mind there are times when it's not there so we want to become acquainted and, and um, not be surprised when we find that, oh, I'm not stuck on the wall, the ride's over, the floors come back up, we can rest there. And those are moments of freedom when we touch in there and surprise ourselves with our own scene. What's important is to stay in the present moment as much as you can. And don't get ahead of yourself or behind yourself. Alan Watts says that the past and future are real illusions. They exist in the present moment, which is what there is and all there is. Only 15% of our time is on the present where we are open to both fear and magic fear and magic. my Tibetan teacher and said to me once she says don't feed the fear so she told me the story about the Buddha who was tossed out of a 200 story burning building and right around the 100th floor someone you know saw him coming down and she leaned out and said, Oh my goodness, uh, are you all right? You know, that impulse, are you all right? <laughs> and the Buddha replied, So far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> the body and the breath is always right there with you, wherever you are to be mindful of the body and the breath and uh, to notice, allow, and relax moment to moment, breath by breath. These are moments of freedom. You might ask where in the body do you feel safe? You know, maybe that can be a question that you ask right where you find yourself. Stuck where in my body do I feel safe? And noting can be a beautiful way of cutting the storyline and kind of simplifying what's being seen. So it's like a sword that cuts through all of the chatter of the mind and you can just name what's happening. Here is a mind that is thinking, thinking. Planning, fantasy, fear. It's like this, being right there, so far so good. Another way of noting is to um, just name the feeling tone, the shortcut of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant with things arising and passing away. Um, Another strategy to keep in mind is that uh, often uh, restlessness and worry is rooted in deep love and care. That what's underneath that agitated mind is a huge capacity for love and care. So we wanna feel into that and become acquainted with uh, this part of us that um, cares. And it's not always so easy. But the idea is to bring an atmosphere of warmth, compassion, and non-resistance to the moment. Warmth, compassion, and non-resistance to the suffering that you're feeling and the, the, the deep capacity to care. One way we can do this is to explore our relationship with calmness. Uh, Being an aversive type, I didn't have any language about calmness for the longest time, but here's a few reflection questions you can consider. What supports you in being calm? Since you've been here on this retreat, What have you felt, when have you felt the most calm? How much importance do you give to calmness? Sometimes we fast forward through looking for the thing to something else to to arise. What are the most common conditions that cause you to lose your calmness? So during practice, one of the things we can do is turn into any feelings of calmness that we have to be acquainted with those times when things are calm. One of the most amazing things that happened to me this year was, was actually coming here to this retreat a few months ago, uh, to the teacher's retreat, and we went on a whale watching outing got on this boat, and we had a guide, and they took us out on the ocean. It was just pretty amazing. It was on my bucket list, so I was just like in heaven. And one of the things that was such a surprise was the whales had a certain rhythm, and the guide the guide was teaching us about the rhythm of the, the whales, so they had a pattern of, of coming up a little, then coming up some more, Showing more of the body. And then there's the crescendo of the tail, you know, bada! And, you, and, and so everybody's waiting to see, oh, when is it going to come again? And then it declines back into the ocean and disappears. And it's like, what happened? Yeah. And then we're all waiting to see it again. But the interesting thing that happened was when it declined into the ocean, it left a footprint on the top of the water. It was this huge smoothness on the surface of the water after it descended. And and all of the other waves all around the ocean continued, but there was this clearing of smoothness after the um, well or the thought left its uh, appearance to us all. There was a smooth and it stayed like that for, for quite a few seconds and then the rest of the ocean just kind of caught up. But that was amazing to me. And that's how I can see calm happening. Where, you know, we, we, we might be surprised by calmness, but we have to, to keep our eyes open to see that it's actually right there. And that happened again and again. The the whale was leaving a signature of calm. And, and and we knew something big had been there. So it was. It, it's it. Calm can be a delightful surprise that touches up, touches us deeply. Another thing to think about is the Buddha, the Buddha and its icon iconology is an uh, image of serenity and peacefulness. The dignity of the posture, the sitting still, the, um, is, is uh, in its own right has a quality of calmness just to place your attention there. I remember living here in Santa Cruz many years ago. You know, Santa Cruz was a place where you went not only to indulge in spiritual materialism, but uh, <laughs> to actually have some enlightening moments every now and then. But I remember living back here. It was in the 80s, and uh, I was just trying a lot of different things while I lived here. So there was dreams, and there was yoga, and there was, you know, I was right out of graduate school. I was just so lit up about uh, all of the experiments of... Uh, of uh, Um, spirituality at the time, I remember going to a breath workshop and um, there was this image that I had that night after going to sleep of um, this Buddha, I didn't know it was a Buddha image at the time, but it was this big guy on a little um, flower on a lake and it had big ears and it had my face on it, and it was floating around on this lake, very serene, like. And what was amazing is that there was these thunder and lightning, and and sh- and and all this showering of of things. And actually, the lightning and thunder had images of people on it that I knew, you know, coming down on on me on this image on this little flower. The flower was just slowly turning this way and that. But what I remember most pointedly is that the image was, was unmoved by it. And this was at a time in my life where I was pretty moved by everything. So to see an image like that uh, in this um, dreamlike state uh, was very powerful for me, but the power part was because I recognized it as something that uh, I was and wanted more of so I think that was my first introduction to Buddha nature before I knew anything about the Buddha seeing this image here and the idea of uh, some of the images that we see of the Buddha is is a sense of equanimity uh, to stand in the middle of things and not be knocked off your center to um, when you don't have the need to interrupt or interpret or make things other than they are. The Buddha said that the earth is my witness tomorrow. One of the beautiful things about the equanimity um, practice in Buddhist teachings of the Brahma Viharas are, are statements like this, whether I understand it or not, Things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. Things are unfolding according to a a lawful nature. All beings meet their joys and sorrow according to a lawful nature. There's a certain letting go that I feel when I practice with these statements. Things are just as they are. No matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are as they are. A sense of letting things be. May I accept things as they are. So the idea is to rest tenderly in what is occurring. To rest tenderly there. To establish a sense of stability and being in your seat. And after we've had, um, you know, there's times when we know a lot of things and we've done a lot of things and uh, we understand a lot of things, it's time to just kind of let some things go. And uh, I like this little autobiography in five short paragraphs. Some of you've probably heard this by Portia Nelson, it goes... I walk down the street, there is a hole in the sidewalk, and I fall in. I am lost, and I am hopeless. Chapter two. (laughs) I walk down the street, the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in this same place. (laughs) Chapter three. I walk down the street, the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, I guess. (laughs) But my eyes are open. I know where I am. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. And chapter five, I walk down another street. (laughs) <laughs> so after a while with these, uh, with the hindrance of restlessness and worry, after, after we know it, you know, sometimes we can just say, I'm not going there. I'm not today. Thank you, Mara. Just sit down here next to me. Let's work something else out. Just not going there. And another strategy is... Um, to find uh, is when we find our way and feel our way through a sense of silence and stillness and this is again returning to the mindfulness the calm still place of awareness that gill offered us earlier today and and we find this oftentimes in solitude where we discover life as it unfolds here and now I like what Bell Hooks have to say about this. She says, knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as a means of escape. And this includes our thoughts. When we can be with our thoughts, we can befriend our thoughts When we can allow them, then we don't have to use them as a means of escape. And this kind of leaving yourself alone or this sense of stillness, staying on the riverbank as Gil said, can be a beautiful foundation for Exploring restlessness and worry, and also freedom. So, there's nothing wrong with restlessness and worry. It's a, it's it's just the thing that the mind does, and um, the idea is to um, allow it to be there without interference, elaboration, proliferation, believing it to be the absolute truth or a permanent truth. But when we don't acknowledge restlessness and worry, we miss that we're suffering. And we also miss when we're not suffering. The Buddha said that freedom from restlessness and worry can feel like being free from all debt, including material hunger and consumption. That's what we get when we are no longer clenched and so solidified by this hindrance. The Buddha says nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I, me or mine. and in the absence of restlessness and worry one abides unagitated with the mind inwardly peaceful unagitated with a mind inwardly peaceful it doesn't mean things are not happening it means that we are still on our seat with open eyes and open hearts so let's sit together for a few minutes Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful nature. All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. Things are just as they are. It's not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. It is the work of love to admire the beauty before you. Our job is to give people including ourselves a sense of safety to unfold. No matter how I might wish otherwise, things are as they are. May I rest tenderly with what is. may i rest tenderly with what is These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now.